She my number one, I don't need nothing on the side Said that I was done for good and don't want no more lies But my phone be blowing up, temptations on my line I stare at the screen a while before I press decline But she plants a seed and it still lingers in my mind Told myself I'm strong enough to shake it and I'm trying But I'm only human, I know loving you's a crime If I take this cookie now, one day I'll do the time Slip me a Xenia at once Verbally Effective, episode 36, your double E, Ina Esco Thank you so much for listening today And I have with me, Miss, look, Miss, Dr. Wendy Marie Laybourne You may know her as Wendy Marie on all your socials Hey, Wendy Hey how you doing, lady? I'm great. Glad to be here. Yes, I saw you at the kickback a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and yes. I was like, hey, I'm going to see you in a couple of more weeks, so I'm so excited that you are here. Yeah. And um, we actually met a few years back before you left to go to Maryland to get your PhD, um, what was what? Which club was it called at that point? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Probably level two. It was level, level two. two. Yes. It was level two. <laughs> I think it was Sue's birthday or something like that. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And um, I remember that's when we first met. And then you went away. (laughs) You went away (laughs) to pursue your Ph.D. So um, congratulations on receiving it. How does it feel? It feels really good. Like all those years of work. Oh, my goodness. And to finally have it completed Mm -hmm. and to be working Mm -hmm. at a university, it feels really good. And I had wanted my Ph.D. since I was an undergrad. So it's been a long, long time coming. So you always knew you wanted to pursue that. Not always. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I went to undergrad, which was at the University of Memphis, I had no idea what I wanted to quote unquote be when I yeah. grew up. But I just knew you have to go to college. So mm-hmm. I went on and went. Yeah. Um, and I just took a lot of classes that interested me. And they ended up being sociology. Mm-hmm. And so by the time, you know, it's getting close to graduation, I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I love everything <laughs> I've learned. You know, this might be a career for me, you know, teaching, working in higher education. And so that's when that seed was planted definitely okay so let's take a step back a bit um I know that you're currently uh back in Memphis and working at your alma mater um as a doctor of sociology and when I think of sociology I think of like the study of how humans interact with each other that's kind of like the (laughs) textbook definition right so describe your current role um as a doctor of sociology at U of M So I'm an assistant professor, which is like the position or the ranking rank of the position at the University of Memphis. Um, And you're absolutely right. Sociology is like the study of human behavior, the study of society, and a big focus on social inequality. So not only what people are doing and what kind of shapes our society, but kind of how is our society unequal and what does that look like across different groups of people. So at the university, I'm currently teaching a racial and ethnic minorities class. So it's an undergraduate class, and we delve into a lot of racial and ethnic inequality, as you can imagine. Um, And so my specialty area is race and ethnicity. So the classes that I will primarily teach will have something to do in some shape, form, or fashion with race and ethnicity, whether that is inequality or identity development or anything along those lines. Wow. Are are the students very engaged in these topics? This is probably like one of their favorite (laughs) courses, I'm sure. Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, (laughs) I I was teaching yesterday. I teach on Monday and Wednesday, and my students were very, very involved and excited about the topic, and they even said, this is my favorite class so what was yes. the topic yesterday because <laughs> i saw on your social media you left your computer you had to go get your computer and you that's how your day started but yes. you got it going i got it going yes definitely because the students are so engaged so you mm-hmm. have to be prepared you have to bring your a game every mm-hmm. class or else if they will catch you slipping you don't want them to do that <laughs> so yesterday we were talking about different forms of privilege mm-hmm. and also how that relates to oppression Um, And the students had a lot to say about Mm -hmm. both privilege and oppression. And they were they were getting into it all over the place. (laughs) So, like as a professor, um, is is your role to I mean, bring the topics up, but kind of get them to think more about it? Yes, absolutely. So it's all about critical thinking. 
So I want to give them some tools and concepts to kind of think critically about what they see, what they hear, what they think, even what they say. Mm -hmm. And what I like to do is I ask my students to send me to look at the syllabus at the beginning of class, right, the very first day. And I say, all right, you see the topics we're going to talk about. So education, um, income, um, families, incarceration, criminalization, Mm -hmm. just all these different topics related to our everyday lives and our society. And I tell them, send me an example of something that you think relates to one of these topics, right? So it can be a meme, it can be a video, a news article, whatever, Mm -hmm. so that they start to make those connections themselves versus me just saying, okay, let me tell you about this or let me give you this example. No, you give me an example and let's talk about it and figure out how it relates to the themes of this course. Wow. And, And has the paradigm of racial inequality, do you see that it's shifted since we have a new president or Was it always there, but now things are more in the open? I think things are more in the open. Yeah. So you have different ways of kind of like the spotlight, right? Mm -hmm. What are we thinking about and what are we now drawing attention to that may have always been happening, but we weren't, you know, focusing on it, you know, in previous years or even previous decades. Yeah, girl. It is just, it just seems like just like the, the sociology piece of everything has just like compounded. To me, mm-hmm. I mean, with the with the information just being in front of everybody right now, right? Absolutely, so, you got a good job over there, <laughs> the University of yes, Memphis. Ma'am. Interesting. Now, um, I know that uh, growing up, you were actually adopted. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, tell us about that when you were adopted and the family that you know. You, you grew up with and yeah. all of those good things. <laughs> Absolutely. So I am Korean-American, for folks who don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I was born in Korea, and then I was adopted when I was four months old um, by a white American family. Mm-hmm. And so kind of over time or worldwide, um, we can think about how Korean adoption started after the Korean War, so in the early 1950s. And since then, almost 200,000 Korean children have been adopted to U.S. families. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot, and primarily to white families. Mm -hmm. We could talk more about why that is. Mm -hmm. Um, And then about 50,000, I think, um, Korean children have been adopted to families in Europe, across Europe. Mm -hmm. So when we think about Korean adoption kind of globally and over time, there have been a lot, thousands and thousands of Korean children that have been adopted to other countries, Mm -hmm. um, so internationally, but also Mm cross-racially. And so my mom and dad, decided that they wanted to live in Memphis Mm -hmm. um, when it was time to kind of like put down roots. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have family on my mom's side that's from this area, and that's why they wanted to live here. Mm -hmm. Um, But growing up, I never knew there were other adopted people. I didn't meet another adoptee until I was in college, actually, until I was like my freshman year in college. Why didn't you know why, I mean, why didn't you not? Why did you not know? <laughs> did your parents tell you you were adopted? Yes, and it was at pretty a young obvious age, <laughs> at a very young age. Yes, so I think you know with international and also cross-racial or transracial adoption, Mm -hmm. it's pretty obvious that something is different. Just like looking, like you look at yourself in the mirror and like, okay, I look like this. And Mm -hmm. you look at your parents and you're like, "Mm, we don't look Mm -hmm. alike. What's going on? And you see families around you and they all look the same Same. race, right? Um, So I knew at a young age, um, and I'm sure my parents, you know, explain like the whole adoption story, you know, all of that. But we weren't involved with any sort of adoption community. Right. So there are often, you know, in cities where there's an adoption agency, there might be a community of families with their adopted children and they kind of do, you know, just fun stuff together, just create community with one another. Um, But we weren't involved in anything like Mm -hmm. that. And I had, again, like I said, had no idea that other people were adopted, that this was a common occurrence. Um, It was just like me. Right. Right. Um, But actually, as when I was an undergrad, I also found out that there were other Korean adoptees in mm. Memphis, okay. um, enough to where there is a small community of Korean adoptees. And that blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? This whole time? <laughs> like, how did I not know? Um, but my parents weren't plugged into that. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't plugged into that, right? Right. Right. Did you have any siblings? No, just me. <laughs> just the only child over there. Okay. Okay. So, like, growing up in Memphis. How was that for you, being an adoptee, just 
uh, you know, maybe noticing some of the the racial issues that mm-hmm. are here in Memphis. Right. Yeah. So I think for me, there was definitely, like you said, the adoptee part, mm-hmm. as in like no one else's family is like mine, right? Mm-hmm. So I was different in that way. And then there was the race component because in Memphis, there's a very, very small population of Asian Americans in this city. I think it's like 1%, right, 1%. of the population okay. is Asian American. So very, very low. And even in my neighborhood and in my schools growing up, I was maybe one of just like a small handful of Asian students in the entire school. Wow. So it was definitely very jarring because it was like, I don't have anyone who relates to me on this adoption side mm-hmm. and I have very few people that I can relate to as Asian American as well. Wow. But you you got through it. You still get through it. You still get yes. through it. So it didn't make you feel any kind of way. Like I mean, do you think it affected you in the way that I guess, you know, growing up any kind of way? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. So even within like adoption research on Korean adoptees specifically, um, but even transracial adoptees more broadly. So again, children of color who are adopted by white families, we see a struggle with adoptees developing their racial identity or their ethnic identity, right? Because some of the first ways we learn about our racial group membership is from our families, because typically we're in the same race families, Mm -hmm. but adoptees don't have that. So there's often a struggle. And then to layer on top of that, white parents often don't want to talk about race with their children, whether they're of a different race or their same race. So you have these issues compounded. And the other piece of it is that adoptees, just like any other kids, you don't want to feel different from your family. Mm -hmm. So even though you're struggling with this race piece, you know, you don't want to bring up to your family because, you know, they don't have that. They don't understand. They don't have that same kind of struggle or those same challenges. Wow. I love you, Wendy. Like, <laughs> like you are awesome. You are very awesome. You're awesome. Thank you. <laughs> now, that kind of goes into um, the Korean adoptee community. Um, so you're very involved in the mm-hmm. Korean adoptee community right now. Yes. Yes, I am. So before I moved back to Memphis, I was living in the D.C. area. So Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. And there's a big population of Korean adoptees there. And so I was involved in Adoption Links D.C., which is a formal organization for um, Korean adoptees, but also welcoming to other international cross-racial adoptees as well. Um, And so that was a really kind of eye-opening experience for me to be in community with other Korean adoptees, right? Mm -hmm. After having lived my whole life You know, not being in community with other folks like me. Um, So that was really affirming. And also, again, like I said, eye opening to have folks that I could talk to about, you know, how I felt when I was growing up, whether it was challenges around race, ethnicity or even adoption itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was able to get really involved in that and also travel to other cities with large Korean adoptee populations. So like New York City, uh, Minneapolis, and then also to travel to Korea um, and meet up with the whole global Korean adoptee community as well. Um, Now that I'm back in Tennessee, there are some Korean adoptees here, like I said, but it's a much smaller community. Mm -hmm. And actually, we just started the Tennessee Korean Adoptee Group. So there are a small number of Korean adoptees here in Memphis and then a small number in Nashville and then a small group in Knoxville. So, of course, we're very widely dispersed across this very long state. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if you think about it, it's 2018 and this is kind of like the first kind of organized meeting of what are now adult, you know, Korean adoptees. Wow. Wow. Have you done like a lineage um, like on your roots and your (laughs) your culture and everything, just to kind of understand everything. Have you done that? So I wouldn't say like a family tree per se, Mm -hmm. you know, because when you're adopted, the amount of information you may get in your file in regards to your birth family can often be falsified information or incomplete. Yes, ma'am. So there's a lot, um, even contemporarily, there's a lot of scandal around international adoption and like did the birth parents really relinquish their parental rights and did they do so willingly Mm -hmm. or was there coercion involved Mm -hmm. in this or child trafficking. It's a lot of trafficking yes. going on. Yes, and you've probably seen a few stories here and there where people find out that the child they adopted actually does have family that is still wow. living and that wanted to retain their parental rights but were kind of tricked or coerced into mm. giving their children up for adoption. 
Yeah. Um, and so that's similar among Korean adoptees because of when adoption from Korea started in the 1950s and 60s, where there wasn't really standardized kind of documentation or policies around it. A lot of people find that their records are false mm. um, mm-hmm. or, again, incomplete. Wow. Oh, wow. It's just so much going on. Um, I see a lot of trafficking uh, stories that are brought to light these days with all types of cultures. But like you said, um, with Koreans, um, they're usually adopted by white families. Why do you think? Racism. Because they don't want to So get... I'll tell you. Okay, so okay. the reason why I say racism. <laughs> you said that quick. I'm like, wait a minute. I wasn't ready for that answer. Okay. Um, so the reason is, is multi-layered. So first, when adoption from Korea began, again, in the 1950s, um, and that was really the beginning of the international adoption industry that we see today. Mm-hmm. Because prior to that, um, Americans weren't really adopting children internationally. Like That really wasn't a thing, right? Um, So after that, um, adoption from Korea began after the Korean War, right? So the country is in turmoil. You have all these children that are orphaned or just separated from their families. And there were American missionaries in Korea at that time, even before the Korean War. Mm -hmm. So American missionaries became kind of like a conduit between Korea and the U.S., like church congregations, as far as uh, publicizing the need, right, these children who are in need. And that's actually how some of the first adoptions began and how some of the first adoption agencies were established through these church organizations. Mm. So so you can think about that. Um, But also, if you think about um, social services and social work agencies at that time and who social workers um, thought were fit parents, right, Mm -hmm. who they thought would be able to raise these children in, you know, good, loving, stable environments, who was fit Were to the be white a parent. People. Exactly, right? That's up. Um, so that's why I'm like racism. Um, yeah. And a lot of social workers at that time were white women who had to go into homes to do home studies. And you can also imagine how that played out with white people going into black families' homes and evaluating mm. them. It's so right? many layers. It is. So that's kind of how that happened. And also at that time, even within kind of like domestic adoption, The focus was on race matching. So white um, children adopted by white families, black children adopted by black families, et cetera. And Korean children got subsumed under this idea of whiteness. Because of the color. Because of the color of their skin, but also during this time, um, the model minority myth was taking shape. So if we think about what was happening in the U.S. right before then, World War II, attack on Pearl Harbor, um, there had just been this really big campaign against Chinese and Japanese Americans or Chinese and Japanese people more broadly. But then right after that, you see Chinese and Japanese Americans um, really rallying around to present a good and acceptable image of themselves mm-hmm. in order to say, no, we're not these people who are attacking or involved in this war. You know, we're American just like you. Mm-hmm. And that's how you see this idea of Chinese, Japanese, or East Asians being these model minorities who follow the rules, who are very patriotic, who value education, etc. And so by the time the Korean War happened and these Korean children were, you know, ready to be adopted, um, they were being subsumed under this idea of these, you know, model minority Mm -hmm. Asian children that will be able to assimilate into these white American families. So you have all these different forces at play. When do you think things changed with um, more of, you know, races, uh, I guess a particular race adopting a different race? Mm-hmm. When did that really start? Because you you see a lot of celebrities doing it, right. but it's probably been going on, I'm sure. Right, absolutely. So like I said, Korean adoption really was the biggest push um, okay. that institutional, initially. right, initially that institutionalized okay. it. So that's when you see policies and procedures actually mm-hmm. starting to come into play and being formalized around international adoption. Wow, this is just so intriguing to me. Now, you mentioned uh, social services. You were talking about, you know, social uh, the social service people coming into the home to assess the situation. Now, when you graduated, you were a case manager. I was. So yes. how did that happen? Like, 
I guess you had a sociology degree, and that's what you wanted to do. Well, I knew, well, like I said, I wanted to get my PhD in sociology. So, like, my senior year in undergrad, I was applying to graduate programs, but I did not get accepted anywhere. What? No, ma'am. So I was heartbroken, um, but I also knew, like, you've graduated college, you need a job. <laughs> you need money. <laughs> need to do something, mm-hmm. some kind of work. Um, and I always had a heart for children and families. Okay. Um, so I was like, okay, maybe something in the social work, case management, something like that. Um, and I hadn't, you know, knew about the Department of Children's Services. So I was like, let me put in an application. Um, and at that time, you know, they weren't hiring. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have this degree. I need a job. <laughs> you think it's going to happen like, bam, I got my degree. I'm about to have a bomb job. Yes. And it don't always work like that. No, it does not work that way. And also with me thinking like, oh, I'm going to go to grad school. Mm-hmm. You know, so my whole plans were like, oh my gosh, what's, ha- what's happening mm-hmm. to my life? Um, mm-hmm. And so I had put in my application at all these different agencies. And at that time, Hurricane Katrina hit. Mm. So... Um, You know, a lot of people had evacuated to Memphis and different social services agencies ended up getting contracts to help those folks find housing, find jobs, et cetera. And so my application was already on file with a social services agency. And they called me and they're like, hey, we don't have anything with Department of Children's Services or Children and Families, but we're, you know, we have this other job. And I'm like, you have a job. Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. I'm I'm ready. (laughs) So that's actually how I first started. So finding um, people, helping people find housing who were here because of Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita. Okay. So did you deal with um, any situations where you're placing kids with their families and maybe taking them out of the home? Any of that? So not with that job. So mm-hmm. after that contract ended, right, because it was just a temporary contract, um, I then joined the Department of Children's Services. Oh, that's it, So yes, okay. yes. Okay. <laughs> so I did, um, so I transitioned over to the Department of Children's Services, and in that case I was investigating alleged cases of child abuse. Girl, I have so many friends uh, when I graduated college that went into social services. And, you know, they were happy-go-lucky in the beginning. And then they just got depressed yes. going into these homes. And they y'all go through a lot and look at some real deal situations. And what can you do? You right. just got to follow the rules, right? Yes. Yes. So that was very, like you said, it's it takes a toll on you. Mm-hmm. It can be very disheartening. And you can feel like, oh, my goodness, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Right? Because so the thing is, Um, anyone can call into like the hotline and say, oh, I think my neighbor or whoever is abusing their child, right? Um, So a lot of the cases we get are not substantiated, right? Mm -hmm. So nothing, no abuse is actually happening, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But then of course there are cases where there is actual child abuse happening. um, And then we try to give resources to the child, but also to the parents. um, And then, you know, it's a wide range of what might happen depending upon the severity of what's going on in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, like, some of your friends, I, it, it took a toll on me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of drinking involved. After hours, not on the job, after mm-hmm. hours, just to, you know, <laughs> decompress. Yeah. Um, because to see families and children, you know, really hurting in this way, mm-hmm. but also to know there's a limit to the resources that we can offer, mm-hmm. you know? There's mm-hmm. only so much that the state has as far as resources to provide parents with, you know, proper training or to help people if it's, you know, whatever the issue is, mm-hmm. um, or even services for the child, whether that's counseling or other services, there's mm-hmm. still a limit. So I really felt like, like, oh my, like I want to do more. There's, you know, there's a limit. Right. And then I also felt, you know, working in that job, you know, it's bureaucracy. There's so much red tape, you know, so much kind of certain paperwork forms, Mm -hmm. barriers that you have to do or are faced with in that type of job. Um, So it's very emotionally draining. Yes, yes, because even myself growing up, um, I went through abuse. Um, Growing up in Texas, my mom married this guy, and he was abusive towards her. It started with her. Then it trickled down to me and my brother. And, um, you know, my brother was older than me, so... He calling family members like, "Uh uh-uh, this is what's going on. And I'm just, you know, so young and like, I don't want to be away from my mom because I know that's what's going to end up happening. And it's just, you know, it's just tragic, the whole breakdown of the family, Mm -hmm. you know. But I remember Department of Human Services getting involved 
and you think about, dang, am I going to go stay with the state? I want to stay with my grandmother. Right. Luckily, I stayed with my grandmother until my dad got custody, and that's how I ended up in Memphis. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, from my friends to my own situation, the whole thing with social services is just, oh, wow. It just seems like, you know, a mind-blowing job. But I know you came to a point where I don't want to do this job anymore. <laughs> and what did you do, Wendy? Yeah, so... At the same time, I was still applying to grad school because I was like, this is my goal. You know, my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. You it's gonna, it to it. Yes, I'm like, it's going to go just like this, um, which was not the case. <laughs> right. So I had been applying to grad school around the same time, you know, year after year after year and getting rejected year after year after year. And finally, I had to, like, come to terms with the fact that, like, you are not going to get your PhD. Like, you have to let it go. Like, it's that's where you were at. That's where I was at. And I was like, okay, you know, that was a hard pill to swallow Mm -hmm. after me having this quote unquote perfect plan of my life and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, you know what? At that time, I was reading this book called The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. Mm -hmm. And I think a quote in that book is, you know, everything is as it should be. And, you know, it's kind of cheesy, but at that time, it really released me from feeling so depressed about not getting into grad school. And I was like, you know what? This is what's supposed to happen. I don't know why. It's not my plan. Um, But obviously, you know, I need to let it go. So around that same time, a friend of mine called me at work and was like, hey, girl, you know, um, the premiere is reopening Mm -hmm. and they're hiring like 100 people. Let's go get a job. You're like, what? I already got a job. What are you talking about? What am I going to go do with this club? Um, and at that time, I don't think I had even ever really been to the premiere, mm-hmm. right? Because I wasn't old enough at that time, you know, when it was like yeah, the place was to the be. Spot, honey. That um, was the spot. Okay. But, you know, since I wasn't going to grad school and had no plans for my life anymore, I was like, why not? This is something I never thought I would do. Why not go work at the club? So, mm-hmm. like that same day, I did. Drove up to, <laughs> to what was becoming level two and put in my application and I was like I don't even know what job I can do in a nightclub Mm -hmm. um but I ended up getting hired Mm -hmm. to be a cocktail waitress Mm -hmm. um and I was like okay you know something fun to do do. right something fun to do do on the weekend all right serve people drinks like in the club sounds like sounds like a good time Mm -hmm. um but if you know me you know that I um am very uncoordinated And so I quickly knew that I was like, oh, no, this is not going to work. I cannot be a cocktail waitress. I'm going to like Like holding the tray tray of drinks. I'm like, no, y'all just have to buy bottles. That's it. Because I'm going (laughs) to drop everything. Oh, my Um, God. And so I was like, I kind of snuck over into my way to the training for the hostesses. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, I can do that. You just stationary talking to people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of how it started with me working at level two, being a hostess. So VIP hosts, people reserve tables. I would, you know, um, get them through the VIP line, take mm-hmm. them to their table, and then kind of like check on them throughout the evening to make sure everything was, you know, going okay, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And so that's how it started. Still working in social services, working at the club on the weekend, not in grad school. And I ended up having so much fun at the club that I was like, you know what? This might be a new career for me. Forget that case right? Work. Forget it. Um, and so <laughs> I, you know, I approached my boss and I was like, "So, you have any full time positions? Yeah. <laughs> Knowing good and well, there are no full time positions." They created one for you, Wendy. They did. Yes, you were great at what you did. Yes, ma'am. And so I, I was like, you know what? I'm young. I, you know, everything is as it should be. The world is my oyster. You know, all this. So I was like. Put my two weeks notice in at my, you know, state agency job and went to work full time at level two. Wow. Yes. That is quite a transition. <laughs> now, I mean, what did you do during the week at level two? Like there were different nights. and Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, a nightclub is a business. Yeah. So there are still all the business things that have to happen, mm-hmm. whether that's hiring people, firing people, you know, mm-hmm. HR paperwork, payroll paperwork, ordering supplies for the club, mm-hmm. right? Ordering alcohol, glasses, you know, everything that mm-hmm. you can think about 
business-wise that's happening in any other business is happening in a nightclub as well. So I was kind of doing the administrative part okay. during the day and also they're available if people wanted to purchase VIP booths, take a tour of the club because they wanted to do a special event, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, and then also working at nights when the club was open still mm-hmm. as a VIP hostess as well. Yeah, so you kind of like... You know, we're taking care of the day-to-day operations, learning the business. Is that a business that you think that you would like to get back into? No. No? <laughs> no, ma'am. No. no, didn't you have fun? I had so much fun. I know you did. <laughs> it was fun, but let me tell you why. Tell me why. So, okay, well, I'll say two things. So, first of all, I did think working on the business, like, in a for-profit business, right? I was like, oh, maybe this would be a new career path versus like social services or nonprofit type mm-hmm. world, right? So that was one thing that I did consider. And I had thought about maybe I'll go to school and get like my MBA, mm-hmm. right? And kind of stay on the profit side mm-hmm. of the business world. But the reason why I say no is not something that I would want to do. I think one, as you get older, it's just not going <laughs> to work yeah, being older. in the nightclub, you know, mm-hmm. every night, right? Mm-hmm. I also think as a woman, there is kind of an age kind of barrier to working in nightlife. That's mm-hmm. my opinion. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is after a while, for me, it was just like I knew that's not where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I said, no, I wouldn't want to do that, you know, again. Mm-hmm. So that clock was ticking. You yeah. was like, hmm, PhD, where are you? <laughs> yes, Where exactly. are you? Did you get the, like, letter, you're accepted? <laughs> yes. Or were yes. you still, you know, applying while working at the premier? So I was not applying. So after, you know, I kind of first started working as a VIP hostess initially, I was like, I'm not going to apply to grad school anymore, right? It's not happening for me. It's time to give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I then I started working full time at the club and I originally I thought, you know, I'll do this for a year and then kind of reevaluate mm-hmm. and make a decision from there. Um, and I wasn't applying to grad school during this time. So a year turned into two years, turned into three years. You were there three years? I was there four years four in total. Years. Really? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you liked it. Yes, I really enjoyed it. It was fun. It was something different. I got to meet a lot of cool people. Yes. Um, you know, all that. And it's also fun to be in an, in an environment where people are having fun. Mm-hmm. You know, people go to the club to have a good time, to celebrate birthdays, job, you know, whatever it is. So it's a really fun atmosphere to be in. Mm-hmm. So that made it, you know, definitely made it exciting. It made it something that I enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, originally I was like one year and then, you know, I'm out. So mm-hmm. that, that clock definitely <laughs> was, was okay, over two. Okay, two. Three, okay, yeah, four. Right. Um, and you know, honestly around kind of that time as the years went on, <laughs> um, you know, God really put it on my heart that it was time for me to quit. Because also in nightlife, you can imagine the things that people are also doing right. <laughs> and some of the things you may see or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really just on my heart, like, you know, this is not really what you're supposed to be doing for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. right? Like, there is something else still mm-hmm. for you. And so that kind of, like, nudge kind of, like, of my, you know, conscious or spirit mm-hmm. was really started to kind of work on me. Yeah. Um, and that it was, like, time for me to go. What was, like, the biggest thing you learned about people in general with nightlife? Mm. The biggest thing that I learned, um, well, (laughs) a few things. So one, I think just reinforcing the idea that people have a need to be seen and not necessarily in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Like we often think about it in a bad way. Like everybody wants to be seen, be out, be somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. But I think, you know, at our core, we all want to be seen, Mm -hmm. right? We all want to be validated. We all want to know that we matter or know that we belong somewhere somewhere, whether that's in nightlife or, you know, in other realms of our lives. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one big thing. Um, The other thing that I learned, actually, I learned a lot of lessons just about business Mm -hmm. and how to handle business um, and just the outlook of dealing with people because Mm -hmm. nightlife is all about building relationships and dealing with people. (laughs) Basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So it came to the turning point. (laughs) Now you're headed to... You're schooling at University of Maryland for your Ph.D. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And how did that all come about, Wendy? So um, 
like I said, God had really put it on my heart, like, it's time for you to go, you know, move on to the next, you know, chapter of your life. And so I had started studying for the GRE because you still oh, have to Oh, that was a yes. <laughs> Okay. Oh, it's terrible. So I started studying for the GRE, took it, did really well, was putting in my applications. Um, around the same time, I had actually quit my job working at the nightclub. Um, so that was, like, the end of 2011. Um, and I had put in my applications, grad school applications. I usually do like December, around early December. So I was just kind of like out in the world with no job. You were you were focusing on yes. the GRE and I'll, getting into grad school at this point. Yes, okay. at that yes full yes. That's kind of where my thoughts were. Also, at the same time, I was blogging, food blogging. Yes, I missed the <laughs> blog, Wendy. So I was blogging at that time at Wendy Eats. Um, I'm now yes. currently blogging at eatreed.com. Okay. But at that time, you know, I quit working at the club. I was like, I'm going to go into blogging full time. And this was kind of right on the cusp of when kind of blogging was starting mm-hmm. to get big. So I was doing the food reviews, restaurant reviews. And I had also started doing videos, like doing short little um, video clips with chefs, restaurant owners, etc. Um, and that was like the beginning of 2012. Did you enjoy? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. I was like, this is it. I wasn't even worried anymore about the grad school thing because I was like, I love food blogging. I love to eat. I love mm-hmm. to share all these local Memphis restaurants. Like, I could do this. Yeah, and I had a I lot of support for it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but in February of 2012, I got that letter. Got the letter. Hallelujah. <laughs> He was like, yes, yes, I'm I, back on track. Yes, I was like, oh, my gosh. I remember opening, you know, it was an email. I remember opening my email and seeing, like, you know, we were pleased to, you know, accept you. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I cried real tears. I know you did. <laughs> uh, I was so excited. Uh, but, you know, it was also a really big step for me to go mm-hmm. to grad school because I was really focused on the food blog. Mm-hmm. And I was like transition in my mind to be like this is what I'm gonna do full time Mm -hmm. um and so it was like okay but this is something you've wanted for years and years Mm -hmm. so I was like okay I'm gonna go to grad school Mm -hmm. um and I knew based on the amount of time and effort it took to blog that I was not going to be able to do it and be in grad school at the same time Mm -hmm. so I stopped the blog Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of regret about that. Mm-hmm. I really did. I, I was like, because you, you enjoyed it. I did. It was like a passion. It was, but I kind of felt like God gave you this opportunity to pursue a dream that you've had for so long, and like you can't be of two minds mm-hmm. type of thing. And so that's why I decided to let the blog go. Wow, isn't it something how in life you get to a crossroads? Yes, and you have two major things that you've been wanting to do and you really love doing. You got to make that decision. Yes, and you made it. I did. Yes, I did. But like I said, I had a bunch of regret about. It. I was like, especially because grad school is so hard. Like getting your PhD is hard. How long were you there? Six years. Six, Six years. So is that the average time it takes to get a PhD for sociology? The average time is seven. Wow. And <laughs> yes. you finished early. Yes. So it was, you know, it was really difficult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, you know, you've been to school, you've been, you know, mm-hmm. elementary, middle, high school, gone, you know, undergrad. But then once you go into grad school and especially starting a PhD, it's just a totally different type of school. You know I what heard, I mean? I heard. Now, I have my MBA, but I've never thought about getting my PhD. Mm-hmm. And I was like. You said how many years again? <laughs> Seven, yes. average. Yes. I mean, how is the setup? Because it's like your first years is kind of coursework. Mm-hmm. And then Absolutely. it breaks down into. Yeah. So for sociology, it's like your first two years is definitely full-time coursework. Mm-hmm. Even maybe into your third year, still full-time coursework. Then we have comprehensive exams. So just like a really huge exam that's testing you on all the knowledge that you've learned throughout those previous couple years. Yes, very stressful. Um, And then after that, you have your dissertation research. So that's your own independent research. Then you have to write your dissertation, which can be a couple hundred pages, right, of your original research. So it can kind of take 
a longer time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what did you do your dissertation on? So I did my dissertation on Korean adoptee identity development, um, but also looking at Korean adoptee citizenship issues as well. Mm -hmm. So what a lot of people don't know is that when um, – in the early years of international adoption, it was up to the adoptive parent to make sure that they secured U.S. citizenship for their adopted child. So it wasn't automatic. Even mm -hmm. though the adoptive parents were U.S. citizens, that child did not automatically get that citizenship. You still had to apply and go through the naturalization process. Mm -hmm. But a lot of parents didn't know because there was no formalized kind of mechanism telling them that. And so you have Korean adoptees who once they turned 18 and entered adulthood, found out, or even now as adults later in life, finding out that they don't have U.S. citizenship, right? Wow. That they still have a green card or whatever the case may be. And so there's a lot of activism right now around a new legislation to retroactively grant citizenship to those adoptees because there have been cases where international adoptees have been deported back to their birth countries. Mm, so, wow. yeah. so you learned a lot from your Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. And when you do your dissertation, is it like you just turn your paper in or do you have to present it to like the <laughs> faculty? Right. So you have a committee of faculty members mm -hmm. who will read over your dissertation. And then you have what's called a dissertation defense, which is a time that you present your work and then they grill you on questions on why did you do this oh, or why did you do that? Too? Yes. Yes. Was it hard? The questions? You or know what? Were you okay? <laughs> I was nervous at first, right, because mm -hmm. it's your work that you spend however many years or whatever right. thinking about and writing and, you know, all this, and you're ready to graduate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and at first I was nervous, but then really I just took a breath and I realized, you know, once you make it to that point, they want you to pass and they want you to graduate, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I was like, you know what, this is one of the few times where I have a room full of faculty who have really read my work are interested in it and want to ask questions to help me make it even better, mm -hmm. right? And so I was like, this is just a conversation about what I've done, right. my own research. It's your stuff. Right, to enjoy it and to really um, celebrate it because it's like, this is the end, mm -hmm. right? Very few people get to that point and then they're like, no, you know, you right. failed. So you, you were good. Yes. You were good. You, you passed with flying colors. Yes. And then after you graduated, wait, wait, before I do that, how was living in Maryland? Did you enjoy? I, okay, so I loved it and I hated it. Why? And the reason I say this is because I kind of think if you're a grad student, you're obligated to hate wherever you are when you're doing mm. your PhD because you're probably like that broke college student. Mm. You don't really get to enjoy whatever yeah. city you're in to the full, you know, full capacity. Um, so because of that, in some ways, I was like, oh, my gosh, I hate it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because Maryland, the cost of living is so high, much higher, uh, right? much, much higher than Memphis. Right. <laughs> um, so that's kind of like the downside. But the plus side is. You know, I was in Maryland, very close to D.C. There's so much to see and do in our nation's capital. Um, and I tell people, you know, whatever you like, whether it's music, arts, food, sports, there's it's there. Mm -hmm. Even if there's things you don't know if you like, you can try it out and mm -hmm. figure out, hey, maybe I do like this. Um, so that's what made it fun. Every single day there are dozens and dozens and dozens of things to do. Mm -hmm. So you tried out a lot. Yes. Enjoy that. <laughs> yes. And of course, lots of good food. Yes. Wendy's a foodie. <laughs> so that's what really pushed me back into food blogging mm -hmm. was finishing the dissertation, having all this quote unquote free time <laughs> mm -hmm. and being able to actually jump back in to blogging about food, but also incorporating books that I have been reading. Mm -hmm. And so now, like I said, I blog at eateatread.com, eat, which read. is com. food and book Book reviews mm -hmm. and you're an avid reader like you have a, a nice collection of books that you've read what would you say is like your favorite top three books oh my god if you could choose because <laughs> I know you read a lot yes oh my goodness top three okay so this summer I read children of blood and bone mm -hmm. which is amazing you know fiction um love it Highly recommend, if you haven't read it, to read it what as soon as possible. What is the gist of it? 
Um, so it is a kind of fantasy, magical world set in Africa. And people have compared it and said it's like Harry Potter oh. because it's all this magical realism, but also um, other elements and themes tied into it that are relevant to today as well. Mm. So I won't give too much away. Um, I'm looking for a good book, but so that's, that sounds interesting yes, to me. I read that book on a flight, well, a very delayed flight, mm-hmm. um, but I could not put it down. Okay. So I would say that's a recent book that I absolutely 100% love. Children of Blood and Bone. Yes. Okay. Absolutely love it. So that would be something new that I really love. I think another book, Oh, you really put me on the spot here because there's so many that I, I just absolutely love. Just give me love. one more then. Okay. Another book. Um, let me see. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. It's like escaping me right now. Um, so there's a book that is about the origins of the model minority myth. And so, obviously, nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, but it really tells the history of how we've come to see um, Chinese and Japanese Americans specifically as this model minority and what it, how it's impacted race, race, race relations, but also racism in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really uh, timely book and also about a topic that we often don't learn a lot about. Right. Um, so that would be another book. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to call you up, Wendy, on book suggestions. Yes. I'm trying to get out of my comfort zone and, you know, read other, you know, topics that I haven't been reading. Like, I know you read a lot, so how do you go to your next book? Is so, it already, like, in your mind, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, is you have a list and you like, <laughs> I'm getting that one next. Well, I do use the Goodreads <laughs> app. So I keep I have that app. Yeah, so I keep anytime there's kind of like, you know, I'm listening to a podcast or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, and I hear someone mention a book, then I'll kind of like save it mm-hmm. uh, in my list. But also, you know, over the summer, I just kind of Google like women writers to, mm-hmm. to watch, right? Or top 10 books by Asian Americans or something mm-hmm. like that. So to get some kind of new book ideas. Girl, I'll be in the library Googling Oprah's book club. Yes. List, and I've actually found a lot of good books from her list, but sometimes it's hit or miss, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm going to be hitting you up. Yes. I'm going to be hitting you up. Definitely. Now, you're actually a published author. Yes, ma'am. So what what is this book, Diversity in Black Greek Letter Organizations, Breaking the Line? Tell me about <laughs> this book. Yes. So... Um, in addition to the dissertation, I also did another research study while I was in graduate school. <laughs> yes. Um, and so this was obviously about non-black members of historically black sororities and fraternities. Okay. So interviewing white, Asian, and Latino members of MPHC organizations. So people who were still in undergrad, who maybe just crossed, as well as people who were in grad chapters and who joined, you know, their organization decades ago Mm -hmm. to understand kind of what were their motivations for crossing the color line in this way? Um, How did it impact Mm -hmm. how they thought about themselves and their own racial or ethnic identity? And then kind of what have been the long term benefits of their membership and participation in their sorority or fraternity? Wow, was it, you know, interesting, their interviews? Because that's very interesting. Yes. So listening to everything that they had to say. So one, thinking about how did, you know, whites, Asians, and Latinos even learn about black Greek life, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one thing. Um, Contrary to maybe what you might think, a lot of these folks had never even heard of these sororities or fraternities prior to coming to undergrad, you know, starting in college. Um, So it wasn't like they knew about it and were like, when I go to college, this is what I'm going to do, right? For them, their first exposure in most cases was at their undergraduate institution. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was really interesting was across the ages of these folks and across the institutions they went to, whether it was public, private, in the north, south, east, west, you know, region of the U.S., all of them talked about a racial divide on their campus, Mm. that they felt that it was kind of white-black racial divide or, you know, white-non-white racial divide. And for the Asian and Latino respondents that I talked to, they found themselves being lumped in together with kind of the non-white side, right, Mm -hmm. and feeling this kind of solidarity with other students of color, Mm -hmm. which really led them to want to learn more about black Greek life. Mm -hmm. 
um, even for the white respondents, even though obviously they were white um, and they mentioned this racial divide, they found themselves still, you know, questioning and wondering, like, why is this racial divide happening? What does it mean for me as a white person if I am being complicit in this culture on my campus? And it led them to really seek out social justice oriented organizations, Mm -hmm. which Black Grief Life is very much social justice Mm -hmm. oriented. And so that's kind of some of the initial motivations for folks wanting to find these organizations and then become interested and become members. I gotta read that book, Wendy. Yes, I, ma'am. I, I gotta get I'll your bring book you right a copy. There. Please do. Yes. Please do. Because you know, I, I pledged way back in spring ninety nine, aka Lemoyne. And like you mentioned, a lot of people don't know about Greek letter organizations until they're at that institution. And I'll be honest with you, I really wasn't interested until I got there and was exposed to it. Mm-hmm. It's not like I was a legacy. You know, somebody in my family was Greek. None of that. So really, I want to say maybe I was one of the first Greeks in my family. But now we got a lot of them, a lot of AKAs, <laughs> a lot of AKAs. But um, I also see that um, you published Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Racial and Ethnic Studies, Sociology Compass, and Asian Pacific American Law Journal. You got a lot under your belt, Wendy. Yes, I was busy. (laughs) Are you you, uh, trying to uh, maybe write another book one day? (laughs) Yes, that is my goal. So I do want to write a book that really focuses on Korean adoptees um, around the citizenship issue um, and also around their use of social media for their own community building and identity development as well. Mm -hmm. So that is something that's kind of next on my list of things that I want to accomplish. Okay, so you probably like, well, give me another two years. Let me work my way into this (laughs) professor position. Yep. Okay, so you have such an interesting life, Wendy. Like, (laughs) I'm so glad, you know, we really delved into it, and I've learned a lot about you today. And, um... It just makes me think of so many things going on in the headlines right now. Oh, I mean, yeah. where do I start? <laughs> I like to transition into current topics with my guests. And with you having a sociology background, I was thinking about the recent news of Sesame Street, <laughs> of one of the writers of the show coming out to say that Bert and Ernie were actually gay lovers Mm -hmm. I was like what (laughs) where did it come from like you know growing up I know you watched Sesame Street you're not even thinking about that Mm -hmm. as a kid so I actually heard um even after that news came out that the the creators of Sesame Street denied it right but this guy was still like yeah (laughs) so I mean even with that being said what do you think about let's just say if Bert and Ernie were actually gay like how does that affect our society Mm -hmm. you know yeah I mean I think that has been kind of a controversy for a while now, right? With Bert and Ernie, yes. Well, wouldn't even yes. know, girl. With I people wondering if they were gay or wanting them to be gay, um, and so it's kind of funny because when you think about these two male Muppets, when you, know, you think about together, it now, yeah, like, yes. like, but you know, I read a little bit more of the interview with the creator or with that writer, and he was saying that he himself was, you know, is gay and was in, you know, a relationship, a very loving relationship with his partner, and him saying, you know, as I was writing these characters, of course, I was drawing on, you know, my own relationship, our own dynamic um, and kind of how I saw this kind of ideal relationship but also with two very unique personalities Mm -hmm. right and I think that kind of speaks to this idea that creators writers creatives you know they're drawing upon personal experience Mm -hmm. or things that are really important to them in their writing Mm -hmm. or in their creating whatever it is and so I think it's really important that we do have a wide range of experiences and people in the room when they're creating things like this, right? Mm-hmm. Because even though maybe he was or maybe he wasn't trying to make these characters gay, yeah. but at that time when he first started writing, you know, Bert and Ernie, there weren't really any gay characters on TV, None. right? And it was so <laughs> taboo then, right? And it's not right, now, <laughs> yes. So. 
But obviously people have a lot of feelings about it because it's a kid's show and they're like, right. you know, are you teaching our children to be gay? It's like, that's not how that works. But <laughs> first right. of all, right. um, so yeah. That was so interesting. Um, just the whole, and you said it's been a debate for a while. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. But I think the, the creators were like, when they retracted, they were like, no, Bert and Ernie were best friends. And that's how it is. Like, they don't want to go too deep into it. Right. But they're right to know what he was writing about. <laughs> now, what do you think about, um, you know, we have a lot of reality shows on TV. And just maybe 10 years ago, maybe we were at the very brink of reality shows. How do you think that affects society? Just mm -hmm you know, what we see on reality shows today. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely what we watch, what we listen to, what we see is shaping how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people, and the relationships that we have. So sometimes people say, oh, it's just entertainment, but entertainment does reflect something about society mm -hmm. and can also have a dual effect of also shaping our interactions and kind of what we think within society as well. Mm -hmm. And I think you also see the effects in relation to everyone kind of wants to go viral or everyone wants to you know be on snapchat or ig or whatever Doing social exactly right because people want kind of their five minutes of fame mm -hmm. so i think you see it shifting in how people interact with each other and kind of this whole movement of everyone is filming or recording everything all the time taking pictures of people without their consent mm -hmm. you know all these different ways that we're interacting with people through technology. That's mm -hmm. a lot of that. When when back in your uh, VIP hostess days, was it a lot of recording and picture taking? Probably not as much as it is no, now. No, not as much, especially not when I first started working. <laughs> I think towards the end, then you kind of saw, you know, different. So I think towards the end, a lot of people were on Twitter at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so you saw a lot of that. But I think not to the extent that it is now, where mm -hmm. anywhere you go, everyone anywhere is on their Anywhere you phone. go. Like, everywhere. Like, you can go to dinner with your parents and everybody, like, even the parents on the phone. I'm like, can we put the phones down, please? Like, yes, it's crazy. Do you think that'll ever change? Um, not for a while. I think it'll continue where people are really invested <laughs> in their phones and in the technology <sighs> that they have. Um, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, I'm to the point now where it's like I'm more kind of taking a step back where I like to be, you know, invested in people face-to-face -face or having more meaningful kind of connections versus always on, you know, always on the phone. But I think you see the effect with, you know, younger kids now being raised on, you know, on all this technology, right? Oh iPads especially, you see, like, toddlers, Girl, you know, they're addicted Eli. to it. <laughs> They are on YouTube watching the other kids. Oh <laughs> I, I often wonder what would happen if the internet no longer existed one day. How would we communicate? I, we would have to go back old school. <laughs> but I think people would really just freak out. Oh, yeah. People would definitely freak out initially. But, you know, eventually it would all work itself back out <laughs> girl, maybe that that's what needs to happen now i have one more topic for you regarding current events now um it's a lot of controversy about um his name is his last name is kavanaugh he is slated to be the next federal court judge and uh, he's recommended of course by donald trump and kind of similar to um, the whole situation back in the day with Clarence Thomas, um, when he was being introduced to being a federal court judge, he had a woman by the name of Anita Hill coming out saying that, you know, he sexually harassed her um, and, you know, did inappropriate things. And we often, especially now, see a lot of that coming out with men uh, in power um, and women coming out telling their stories with the Me Too movement. Um, the guy that was over CBS that's married to Julie Chen, he just had to step down from his position because he had a lot of complaints. And Julie Chen even stepped down from being over the talk, talk show. And I hate that for her because I know she's really in a complicit situation with her husband, head of CBS, and but now she has... The, the job she had with going on a talk show called The Talk, 
talking about people right. that are in the Me Too movement. She can't do both things. You can't be with your husband that's doing the same thing you're right. talking against. So, I mean, how do you feel about, you know, the entire Me Too movement and how everything is getting exposed now with, you know, men in power and even some men are coming out about women right. as well. So what do you feel about this whole situation? I think it's um I think it's a very positive movement. I think any kind of atmosphere or cultural shift that allows people to um, talk about the abuse that they've experienced, I think is a very positive change that needs to happen, whether it's women who are coming forward after decades, right, or men as well coming forward about the abuse that they've experienced at the at the hands of people in positions of power. So I think it's good to see our culture hopefully shifting to where people know that they are accountable to their actions, regardless of if they happen today or if they did happen, you know, decades ago. Girl, it's so much coming out. I mean, think about like just in the, t- you, d- you know, they just had the Emmys, mm-hmm. but think about everything that's coming out about that whole movie life, you know, lifestyle with these kids coming up in the movie business and how they, the things that they had to do to get these roles, honey. Right. It is crazy. Well, Miss Sociologist, Dr. Professor. <laughs> Dr. Wendy Marie Laybourne, I have really enjoyed you, lady. I've learned so much today. Thank you, you for having me. You are a breath me. of fresh air. Now, tell everyone how they can get in touch with you, follow you on social and your blog. Yes. So on social, I'm Wendy Marie only. So on Twitter and IG. And then, of course, the blog, eateatread.com. So all your local food reviews as well as book reviews. Yes. And you got the new book coming real soon. Maybe in a couple of years. (laughs) That's right. Maybe sooner. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Miss Wendy Marie. I enjoyed you. Thank you. Verbally Effective Episode 36 in the book. All in your mind were fears that would come true Back of my mind, the back of my mind was you Wishing that I could blind myself from view And only advise, and only advise for you Slip me a sandy at once I got the earth in the blunt I get the skirt when I want I get the skirt when I want Due to the money aroma My girl, she got a diploma She got white written all over She got white written all over